Hey folks, before we get started, I had just a few quick announcements for you. First off, we will reach the end of the Peloponnesian War today, but this is not the end of the first season. As of right now, it looks like we'll probably have two more episodes and then wrap up the season sometime in mid-April, but I also said that this time last year, so who even knows anymore? And of course, I'd also like to thank all the new reviews we've had coming through iTunes, and other places as well for that matter. Thank you for the new supporters on Patreon, and for those that are sharing the show. Los Angeles, you folks are clearly doing something. LA has just jumped up to the number one city in the world. So thank you very much for what you're doing out there. So remember, support the show on Patreon if you can, review if you can't, and either way, just share the show with somebody. That is the number one way to help out. Now, thanks for tuning in, and enjoy this, the final episode of the Peloponnesian War. In the end, it's our ideals, our values, that built America. From the crew of Apollo 8, values that allowed us to forge a nation. We close with good night. To me, the flag has been more than just merely an inspiration. Good luck. I am not a perfect servant. I am a public servant. They have chosen to risk death rather than slavery. All of you on the good earth. And therein lies the road to war. This is History in the Making. I'm Rob Sims, and you're listening to episode 25, A Splendid Rope. How do you judge the people around you? And when I say judge here, I don't mean in a moral sense. I just mean evaluate them, get a feel for their personality. I think most of us probably judge the people around us on a day-to-day basis. Just little interactions over lunch, maybe getting a drink together, seeing each other on the way into work, that kind of thing. It's these little interactions that you have that really aren't that significant by themselves. But once they're repeated long enough, day-to-day, week-to-week, year-to-year, you finally feel like you have an understanding of how this person operates. And then compare that to, let's say you get in some really dire situation with them. Let's say one of you might get really sick. Let's say you might be in a car accident together. Let's say something really big happens, and it doesn't even have to be bad. Let's say you win the lottery. During these extreme examples, sometimes people will act in a way that we don't expect. These extreme examples will either confirm or supplant our initial impression of them based on our normal interactions. So if this is the way we form our judgments about people, do you think it's fair to then take that approach and apply it to a nation, a sovereign nation? For instance, let's say we have Nation A over here, and Nation A is really pretty boring. They don't do too much, they're not very advanced socially or scientifically, and then when extreme things happen to this nation, maybe some type of giant natural disaster or an enemy invasion, they tend to roll with the punches. They just do what they need to survive, they don't push back too much, and they get along just fine. So that's Nation A. But let's say we also have Nation B. And Nation B is brilliant. They're scientifically advanced, they're economically advanced, they understand the economy in a way that's just beyond their time. They trade with their neighbors, they foster culture in cities around it. But when they're faced with difficult times, they respond violently, viciously, simply as a matter of course. Now, how do you compare these two nations? If you're using the day-to-day method, well, Nation B is obviously going to win. Nation B is making all these advancements in every category, while Nation A is just putzing around. 
But if you're looking at the extreme examples that might make you doubt how they act on a day-to-day -day basis, Nation B is the thing that'll bring the apocalypse, and Nation A tends to just roll with the punches, keeps the status quo, and lets everybody live in peace. Now, admittedly, it's hard to judge an entire society, and this is something we've ran into with Athens before. But here's the thing about Athens. Normally, it is very difficult to judge an entire society simply based on the actions of their government if you have an autocratic nation, while the actions of the government might not reflect the actions or the will of the people at all. That's not the case with Athens. Athens is one of, if not the most direct democracy we have ever seen. And so the actions of Athens will often directly reflect the will of the people in a way that is unparalleled in modern times. Now granted, just to be fair, this is reflective of only the male citizens over 18 that are able to vote. So the actions of Athens are not going to reflect the will of the women or the slaves at all. But the question still stands. Should we judge Athens and the actions of it and its people by its normal day-to-day -day interactions with the city-states around it and with each other, or by their extremes? If we look at the day-to-day -day operations of Athens, especially during peacetime, we see a city that fostered trade that swept across the Mediterranean. The coins that they minted in their cities were over 90% pure. That's so pure that they would push out other currencies and become the choice of currency for merchants and traders and just day-to-day -day people all throughout the region. And not only did their trade sweep over much of the Mediterranean, but so did their plays. Greek theater is famous, but many of the plays that were written in Athens were performed all over the Greek world. And then not only would the plays of Athens travel out to other cities, but the people of the Athenian Empire would travel into Athens to see the plays of Athens. There would be giant festivals, one particularly large one in the spring that would take place, and people would come from all over to watch the theater of Athens. And then tack onto that, that the standard of living in general has been improving over time, during peace at least, as well as the literacy rates are improving. Now, those are thoroughly modern measures of assessing a modern nation. And yet, Athens is still getting high marks in both. Now, to be clear, I don't want to paint too rosy of a picture of Athens here. Even during their day-to-day -day operations, they tended to have a lot of infant exposure, where if a child was born and not wanted, you could just leave it out in the streets to die. This seems to be more common in Athens than even some of the other nation-states of its time. And gender inequality was also rather extreme. Women really had no place in the society of Athens. So by no means am I trying to say that Athens was a perfect society. They had plenty of things to work on, but if we look at their day-to-day -day operations, especially compared to the cities around them, they were doing pretty well. But that is the Athens of the past. After about 25 years of war now, they are broke. They're broke to the point that the silver coins that they used to mint have been replaced by bronze coins, and some of their silver coins are actually just bronze coins with silver wrapped around the outside. Meanwhile, they're losing rowers of their fleet over to the Spartan fleet because the Spartan fleet is paying great. They're being backed by Persian gold. Sparta doesn't have a problem with cash. And so now what we are left with is an Athens that is not fighting for further glory or trying to further its society in some way, but we have an Athens that is fighting for its survival against its angry empire that wants retributions for the atrocities that Athens has committed. Now to be fair, 
The list of atrocities that Athens has committed is rather short. Often horrific? Yes. Often done in cold blood? Yes. But still rather short. The most recent of these atrocities actually happened within the walls of Athens, against Athenian citizens. Of course, I'm referring to the Athenian generals that were elected to go fight against the Spartan fleet, which they did and they won, but afterwards weren't able to rescue all the men left in the water after this battle. And so they were brought back to Athens, tried as a group, and then executed. Now, this is not only the obvious perversion of justice that we pointed out, but it does a couple other things. Most obvious is that it deprives Athens of experienced military leaders in a time when they need experienced military leaders. The other thing it does is a little more subtle. All the would-be generals in Athens, men that were eligible for this office, saw this happen. They saw people who deserved to be general, be elected, did really a good job, got a victory, and then were killed afterwards because the assembly was angry with them. How do you think that's going to affect them and their desire to be a general? They're not going to want to be a general, obviously, because you could either die in battle or win a battle, and if you didn't win it in the right way, you can come back and be killed by the assembly. So the generals of Athens at this time were really either one of two things. They were either inexperienced and elected to be general anyway, but forced to be kind of timid, or they knew the risk and they didn't care. They just wanted Spartan blood. They wanted to win this war. They're still fighting for empire. So these two groups of Athenian generals, you have one group, which we can think of as the timid. They've been cowed not only by their position as Athens as a whole, but also by the bloodlust of the assembly that could flare up apparently at any time. And then we also have the bloody. People who want to fight against Sparta, and they're okay taking more extreme measures in this extreme time. One of these bloody generals is named Philocles. Just as an example of what Philocles is willing to do, he recently captured two enemy ships, and if you're one of the people on these ships, you could probably expect to at least be sold into slavery, would be the bottom rung of what you're expecting. Instead, Philocles takes all the men on these ships and just throws them overboard to drown and takes off with the ships, leaves the men in the water to die. These are prisoners of war, and he just executed them arbitrarily. The other general we'll mention who kind of splits the difference here between the bloody and the timid is Conan. Now, this is the same Conan that was trapped in that bay by Callicratidas, and the Athenians brought together an emergency fleet to go rescue and since Conan was trapped in that bay when that big battle took place, he wasn't condemned as one of the generals who didn't do their job. So he's still around. And even though he is experienced, he really hasn't done anything. Really, all he's done is survive. He's managed not to get captured by the Spartans or killed by the assembly so far. He hasn't won any big battles. All the other generals who might lead who are experienced have either left Athens, like Alcibiades, have fallen out of favor, like Thrasybulus or Theramenes, or were just recently killed by the assembly, like Pericles and Thrasyllus. And now all that remains is this group of largely inexperienced generals who will lead Athens into the twilight of the Peloponnesian War. Three months after the generals were executed, this play comes out. Now, most of the plays that we've been covering come out during the big festival in spring, 
this is when people from all over the Athenian Empire and then some will come to Athens to watch these plays. But because there were people from all over the area, if you were one of the playwrights of Athens, you usually tried to represent Athens in a good light during these plays. Because you wouldn't want all these foreigners in Athens to watch a play written by Athenian playwrights that was heavily critiquing Athens. But this play that came out three months after the generals were executed was not during this festival. It was during a much smaller festival that took place in the winter. And typically, there would really only be Athenians at this festival. And so this meant that people like Aristophanes could really let loose. Think about it like this. If you're out with your family somewhere and somebody insults one of your family members, well, you might just flip out. You're going to be furious that they would dare to insult your family. But then you all get back home, and in the privacy of your own home, you might tell that person who was insulted in the street, hey, you know what, that guy was right, you should really work on that. The difference here is that you're fine critiquing your own family members, but you wouldn't dare have anybody else do it. That's how you can think of these festivals. So the big festival in the spring, when all the foreigners are there, the playwrights like Aristophanes are going to be pretty friendly to Athens. But then in the winter, in the privacy of their own home, so to speak, they can really take off the gloves and let everybody know how they feel. So this play comes out, and really it's a pretty standard comedy. Basic idea of the plot is that Dionysus, the god of wine, is sad. Because even though most of these festivals are in his honor, all the good tragic poets have died. People like Aeschylus, Euripides, and Sophocles are all dead. And so he thinks Greek theater just isn't nearly as good as it used to be, and Dionysus decides to go down to the underworld to bring back one of these great playwrights. He goes down there with his slave, but he's scared of the underworld, so he dresses up as Hercules to try to scare off any would-be threats. But the problem is that Hercules has a ton of enemies in the underworld. Hercules has killed tons of people. And he even visited the underworld during some of his labors and ticked off a bunch of people down there again. So when Dionysus gets down to the underworld dressed as Hercules, a whole bunch of people want to kill him because they think he's Hercules. So then he gives the Hercules costume to his slave, but then the slave pretends to be the master since he's dressed up as Hercules and starts ordering Dionysus around. There's this one scene where the slave is dressed up as Hercules and someone accuses him of coming down into the underworld before and stealing that great three-headed dog that's supposed to guard the underworld. Well, the slave, Xanthius, who's dressed up as Hercules, says, I didn't steal your dog. I don't know what you're talking about. And in fact, if you don't believe me, why don't you take my slave here and points to Dionysus. Why don't you take him, torture him, and we'll reveal the truth that way. Now, just for context, remember, that was something that could legally be done in the Athenian justice system. A slave's testimony would not be admitted to court unless it was under torture. This is really dark. It's also not exactly apparent how common this was used. Some people believe it was a law, but was very rarely actually used. Anyway, so that's rather dark, but that's the context for what's going on here. So Xanthius the slave, who's dressed up as Hercules, points to Dionysus, says, torture him, we'll figure it out that way. Dionysus says, wait, what? No, you can't torture me, I'm a god. And Xanthius says, that's ridiculous. If you were really a god, you couldn't feel any pain. So what are you complaining about? Dionysus blames his slave, saying, no, he's actually my slave. I'm the god. You have our roles reversed. So what ends up happening here is they both, for some reason, agree to be whipped. And whoever shows pain first is apparently not the god which is ridiculous because in this play, they both feel pain. 
but both want to convince this guy that they're actually the god. So this guy from the underworld first whips Dionysus, and Dionysus has his eyes tear up because it hurts. And the guy points out, hey, you're tearing up. Did that hurt? And he goes, oh, no, does anybody else smell onions or is it just me? And then they move on to the slave. Man from the underworld whips Xanthius, the slave, and he'll do something like yell out, Apollo, Lord of Delos and Pylos. Try to play it off like it doesn't hurt after he cries out. This goes on for a while. It's it's kind of dark, but it's honestly really funny, too. Them yelling out like Dionysus gets hit and he yells out, Poseidon, who dost reign among... And he starts singing this hymn with Poseidon's name in it to play it off. This goes on for a while. Really long and short of this play is that they get down to the underworld. They find the poets. Some big contest is put on where they're having all these different plays within a play. Eventually, Dionysus picks a winner, and they all head back up to the overworld. Now, this play received a fantastic reception. Frogs not only won this contest, but it was performed twice by demand of the audience. This is a really rare honor. And Aristophanes was crowned with a wreath of olive leaves from the sacred olive grove of Athens. And if you're a little confused right now, I don't blame you. Why exactly is this such an honored play? Why is he being so harsh with Athens? Well, in the play itself, there's really nothing that dings Athens too hard. He kind of comments on a few social things about how they're broke right now. The chorus is dressed in rags, for instance. But what really brings this play to the foreground, and what really makes it memorable, is not what happens in the play itself. You see, old-school Greek comedy is separated usually into two acts, And between the two acts, there's this part where the chorus comes out and talks to the audience directly. Keep in mind here, they are short on military leaders, and they recently suffered that coup that happened in 411, so we're looking at about six years ago. But the people that were kicked out of Athens into exile are still in exile. They're still being punished for what happened several years ago. And so with all this in mind, how broke Athens is, the fact that some of its currency has been replaced with copper, the fact that they don't have any military leaders, the fact that people are still in exile from something that happened six years ago when Athens is desperate for good leadership. With all this in mind, listen to the last of what the chorus has to say to the audience of Athens. Now, in all the research that I've done for this show, I have come across some really excellent writing. Stuff not only from people like Thucydides and other historians or Plutarch, but also the plays of Greece. There is a reason that these things are still talked about and studied today. I'm going to read you the last of what Aristophanes puts in the mouth of the chorus leader to say to the audience, and I want you to pay particularly close attention to the very last line, because it's one of the best I've read in the two years of doing this show. It does rhyme throughout it, but try to pay attention to the critiques that are being leveled at the people of Athens, and again, to that last line in particular. The chorus leader steps forward and says this to the audience of Athens, quote, I'll tell you what I think about the way the city treats her soundest men today. By a coincidence more sad than funny, it's very like the way we treat our money. The noble silver drachma, which of old, we were so proud of, and the one of gold. Coins that rang true, clean stamped and worth their weight, throughout the world have ceased to circulate. Instead, the purses of Athenian shoppers are full of phony silver-plated coppers. Just so, when men are needed by the nation, the best have been withdrawn from circulation. Men of good birth and breeding, men of parts, well-schooled in wrestling and the gentler arts, these we abuse and look instead to knaves, 
Upstarts, not entities, foreigners and slaves. Rascals all, honestly, what men we choose. There was a time when you would have scorned to use. Men so debased, so far beyond the pale, even as scapegoats to be dragged from jail and flogged to death outside the city gates. Misguided friends, change now, it's not too late. Try the good ones again. If they succeed, you will have shown that you have sense indeed. And if things don't go well, if these good men all fail, and Athens comes to grief, why then, discerning folk will murmur, let us hope. She's hanged herself, but what a splendid rope. This poem is describing Athens putting in dazzling effort after dazzling effort in order to win this war and liquidating its entire city, its people, everything it has in an effort to win this war and instead condemning itself to death because of the cost it was willing to pay. This poem is describing the future generations coming and looking at the hanging body of Athens and saying, she's hanged herself. But what a splendid rope. Meanwhile, in Sparta, they need new leaders to fight this war for them. Callicratidius, the previous naval leader, has died in the battle during last episode, and they need somebody to replace him. But here's the problem. Remember, the only reason Callicratidius was put in charge and Lysander was pulled back was that you can only serve one year in your entire lifetime as the naval leader. Lysander's already served that term, but the allies of Sparta want Lysander back, and Lysander has proven himself to be an extremely effective naval leader. So what Sparta does is appoint somebody else nominally to be in charge of the fleet and make Lysander the secretary or the advisor, but really it's no secret that Lysander's actually running this fleet. Lysander then takes the Spartan fleet and heads east back to Persian-controlled territory to meet Cyrus. Now when Lysander and Cyrus meet, Cyrus is actually being recalled back to the Persian capital to answer for some stuff that he did to his cousins. His cousins apparently had disrespected him, and he had them killed for it. And so now he has to go back and answer to his father, the king, and explain what he did. While Cyrus is gone, he takes an extraordinary step, though. He appoints Lysander as the Persian satrap as this area. He makes Lysander a Persian governor. Lysander now has the ability to collect tribute on behalf of Persia. This is unprecedented. Cyrus, of course, also gives Lysander all the money he's expecting, and he also tells Lysander, listen, don't attack the Athenian fleet unless you clearly outnumber them and have every advantage. Because when I get back, I'll make sure you have all the ships you need. Don't do anything foolish, I'll be back. Now, even though this is a strange move on the surface of things, Lysander being put in charge of this Persian territory, this actually makes quite a bit of sense for Cyrus to do. He is concerned about getting the throne one day. He's got all kinds of usurpers to watch out for, and so when he leaves, he's worried that if he leaves another ambitious Persian in charge, they'll use that as a foothold to gain influence in the area and then maybe lead a revolt someday, who knows? So instead, by leaving Lysander in charge, he cements this alliance with Lysander and also doesn't have to worry about any Persians taking over while he's gone. So Cyrus leaves and Lysander is in charge of the Spartan fleet and this Persian territory. Now Lysander does not have a large enough fleet to attack the Athenian fleet directly at this point. The Athenian fleet, after winning this last battle and bringing in more ships in the meantime, have accumulated about 180 triremes. 
That's a massive fleet, and Lysander doesn't want to face it just yet. He's calculating. He's patient. And so he's going to wait to hit Athens when they're weak. In the meantime, he's not going to waste any time, though. He's going to go around, and he's conducting raids of Athenian territories, moving around fast enough that Athens probably couldn't catch him if they wanted to, but because the Athenian generals are all somewhat timid at this point, they're not going to really make much of an effort anyway. Lysander starts raiding. He hits places like Southwest Asia Minor, he hits Rhodes, and he even goes all the way to Attica itself, that's the property of Athens, in mainland Greece. Lysander is conducting raids everywhere, and when he captures some of these Athenian cities, he kills all the men and enslaves the women and children. That should sound familiar to you. Those are the worst atrocities that Athens has ever committed, and Lysander is doing it with cold, calculating blood. Lysander is conducting a bit of a terror campaign. He's making sure that the allies of Athens are too scared to resist. And when Lysander takes over these areas, he replaces it with a Spartan governor who's loyal to him. What is subtly happening here is that the empire of Athens is beginning to crumble at its edges and a Spartan empire led by Lysander is slowly dawning to take its place. Remember, other Spartan leaders are fine with Athens still existing in some capacity, they just want to keep it in check. Listen to this quote by Donald Kagan. He's referring to Lysander here. Quote, His policy was the reverse of Callicratidas's. There was to be no Panhellenism. The battle lines were drawn not between Greek and Persian, but between friend and foe of Lysander. Lysander's ambitions are finally coming to fruition, and if we ask Lysander that question in the beginning, how do we judge civilizations, how do we judge societies by their normal day-to-day -day operations, or by their extremes, Lysander would probably think we were nuts. He would say there is no normal and extreme. Mercy, death, Selling people into slavery, the complete annihilation of a city, these are all just tools to be used. There is no normal versus extreme, there is only ineffective versus effective. And Lysander was extremely effective. By early summer, reports of all the raids Lysander was conducting were leaking back to Athens, and Athens knew it had to act. By late summer, Lysander had taken his fleet and moved up into the Hellespont which threatened to cut off the vast majority of the food supply for Athens. Athens had to follow. Athens launched its fleet of inexperienced generals and chased Lysander. Now, Athens did have a large fleet, though. It had 180 ships, like we mentioned, and six generals were in charge of this fleet. In this fleet, there was a total of 35,000 men. This is not only Athenians, but all of its allies as well and they are going into the Hellespont to pursue Lysander. Before they do, though, they know how dire of a situation this is. They know that any big loss will probably be the end of the war for them, and so they need to make sure that they are taking appropriate steps to keep Lysander and his fleet in check in the future. This is not the normal day-to-day -day operations of Athens. It is under extreme stress, and so under the leadership of Philocles, that bloody general that we mentioned, the Athenians pass a law. If they win this battle against Lysander, any prisoners that they capture will have their right hand cut off. 
so that they can never pull an oar again or wield any type of weapon against Athens. Now, just to be fair, I do have to point out that some sources like Plutarch say it's the right thumb, not the whole hand, like Xenophon says. But that really does not change the fact that the Athenian assembly in this extreme time just put their stamp of approval on state-sponsored mutilation of prisoners of war. And it's with this determination, this cold willingness to act, that the Athenian forces and their allies moved to the northeast to chase Lysander into the Hellespont. Now Lysander is already set up. He has a good position. He has supplies for his troops as well as available money. And we can assume that the forces are about even to the Athenian forces. So we can assume that Lysander has about 180 triremes with him. They're set up. They have a port. Meanwhile, the Athenians, because they have to keep an eye on Lysander, they can't allow him to go any further up into the Hellespont and cut off more food or gain a better position. They try to find a place nearby, but there's not really any good port. So what ends up happening is that the generals and all 180 of these triremes find this beach nearby. It's a wide open beach. Off to the south, there's a big high point that comes up out of the water. And so although they're close to Lysander and his fleet, just to the north, there's a high point of land that comes out and actually blocks their view of Lysander's fleet. So they're on this beach, but they just have to beach their ships, and they don't really have a lot of supplies. This isn't really an ideal situation, but it does allow them to see Lysander if he comes out of his port and starts moving north further into the Hellespont. Lysander can't go any further without them knowing about it. Now, in a strange coincidence, Alcibiades is nearby. It's this area where he's chosen to flee from Athens and go into self-imposed exile. When he left Athens, he went to the Hellespont. Alcibiades is now a local warlord in the Hellespont. He has control over a couple different armies, and what he does, he shows up to the Athenian forces and he points out, listen, because you don't have any supplies in this area, you don't have the luxury of choosing when to go to battle with Lysander. Sooner or later, you're going to have to fight. Why don't you go find a better port? And he even suggests a few other places where they could go. And he offers more than this. He's not just there for advice. He always wants to come back to Athens. He's ambitious. He's not going to just fade into the distance. So he says that he has a couple armies at his disposal now because he's a local warlord. And he makes the deal that if you give me a command in this fleet, then I'll let my armies serve you. He's offering the exchange of his men in exchange for command of the fleet. The generals don't want anything to do with this. And, and frankly, it's easy to sympathize with the generals of Athens. Even though this is an experienced former Athenian general offering to help them out, this is Alcibiades. He's so charismatic. The people of Athens have such a high opinion of him that if they allow Alcibiades to help them out in this fight and they win, well, all the credit is going to go to Alcibiades. None of it's going to go to them. And then if they lose, the Athenian assembly will blame them for bringing this disgraced general Alcibiades there to help. Either way, the generals are in a lose-lose position if they bring Alcibiades into their midst. And so they deny his offer. And they tell him in no uncertain terms that they are in charge now. Alcibiades leaves, and the Athenian generals prepare for battle with Lysander. Now, all 180 of these Athenian ships come out into the water the next morning, ready to take on the latest existential threat to Athens. 
But they form up in this line, and they're ready to fight Lysander, and they're expecting Lysander to come out and offer battle, but they wait, and they wait, and hours pass, and eventually it's noon, they've been there for several hours, and it's time for lunch. So the Athenians turn around, go back to their beach, and get out for the day. And then the next day comes, and they take all their ships and go out and prepare for battle with Lysander, and just sit there for hours, holding their position. Lysander is not eager to come out and fight them at this point. And so, as the Athenians do this day after day, well, the natural assumption here is we're offering battle to Lysander, but he's refusing to come out and fight. Instead, he's hiding in that cove over there. He must be scared of us. And this isn't a terribly unreasonable position for the Athenians to be in, because they did just win this giant victory against Sparta. Maybe Lysander is scared to fight them now because there's so much riding on this victory. Either way, the Athenians are getting cocky. And so as they leave and go back to their beach each day, they're getting a little more relaxed. The men will get out of the trireme and get on the beach and just hang out. There won't even be a watch posted by the generals because at this point, everybody thinks that Lysander's scared to fight them. So people are relaxing on the beach instead of keeping a watch. And at the same time, there's not a lot of food in this area. They don't have enough supplies to feed themselves. And so this means they need to forge out a little farther from their triremes every day. They go and deplete the food in the immediate surrounding area. And so the next day, they have to go a little further and a little further. Four days pass like this, with the Athenians becoming more and more confident that Lysander is scared to fight them while also having to move a little bit further away from their ships to go find food during the day. And while the Athenians are going a little more relaxed, a little more confident, Lysander is keeping watch. Although the fleets can't directly see each other, what would happen each day when the Athenians came out, lined up for battle, waited several hours, and then turned around and left, is that a couple Spartan scout ships would follow them, quietly, in the distance. And so every single day when the Athenians go back and get a little further away from their ships trying to find food and a little more relaxed, the Spartans were watching. Lysander was applying his cold, hard, patient math and biding his time. And so on the fourth day, when the Athenians offer battle, wait for hours, and then turn around and go to the beach, and everyone on the ships leave to go find food, the Spartan scout ships see this and come racing back to Lysander. As soon as they're in eyesight, they take large, polished bronze shields and hang them over the side of their ship, reflecting light back at the camp. This is a signal, and Lysander knows that the Athenians have abandoned their ships on the beach. He mobilizes his entire force, and about 180 ships come racing out of the bay and towards the Athenian fleet. The Athenian fleet has no idea. Lysander crosses this water, hits the beach, and soldiers jump off of the ship and start sprinting up the beach, going to take the high ground overlooking the Athenian camp. This is all still happening in the blind spot of the Athenian army and navy. It can't see what's going on at this point. So the Spartan soldiers jump off the ship, run up the hill. Meanwhile, the Spartan ships pull back off the beach and start racing around this high point towards the beach and towards the unguarded ships of the Athenians. 
With this ancient army, the ships are not just a form of getting around. The ships are the weapons. They're the things that's going to smash into the other ship and win battles. So if you can manage to steal all the ships from the enemy, that's like stealing all the tanks and rifles of a modern army. Lysander takes his fleet, comes racing around the corner, hits the beach, and these Spartan ships will pull up alongside the beach, throw out grappling hooks to the empty Athenian ships, and start dragging them off the beach and into their midst. The Athenians barely know what's going on. This happens so quickly. Some of the generals realize what's happening and try to put up some type of resistance. Some of the Athenian ships are launched with just a couple rowers on a few levels, but this isn't enough to do anything and the Spartans scoop them up before they barely have a chance to fight back. Other Athenians are on their ships and fighting back against the grappling hooks and the Spartans that are coming across, but they're hopelessly outmatched. Most of the Athenian army doesn't even know what's going on at this point. As the Spartans are sweeping up the beach coming from the south, further up to the north on the beach is Conan and his ships. He sees what's happening. He understands that the Spartans are stealing the ships right out from under their noses, and he takes his own ships and launches out into the water. As Conan and his ships pull away from the beach, there's about ten, a little less of them, they see what's happening, but they also know that they can't do anything about it. The entire Spartan fleet is wrapping up the Athenian beach. All he can do is save the men that he's with. Conan and his triremes pull off into the distance to try to make a break for it. By this point, Lysander has personally landed on the beach with his marines. He's killing what few Athenians and their allies are there resisting, and he is attacking their camp directly. Meanwhile, the soldiers that he dropped off earlier are coming down off of that high point, hitting the Athenian camp from the other side. This happens so fast, so effectively, that this battle is over before it even begins. The Athenians and their allies are surrounded. The Athenian allied ships have been dragged off the beach into the Spartan fleet. The battle is done. Lysander captures over 90% of this fleet, tens of thousands of men, over 3,000 of which were Athenian. As Lysander tightens the noose around this final Athenian fleet, Conan can see it from a distance. He takes supplies from the Spartan camp to set up sails for the long voyage ahead of him, but he has no intention of returning to Athens. He knows what happened to the generals before him. He knows that the assembly executed them. He has no intention of meeting the same fate. And him and his ships point their bows east and vanish into the distance. By the next day, Lysander is free to do whatever he wants with the Athenian fleet. And he begins applying his cold hard math. He knows about Philocles. He knows that Philocles took prisoners of war and threw them into the ocean to drown. He knows that Philocles led the Athenian assembly in approving state-sponsored mutilation. According to Xenophon, this is how Lysander reacts to having Philocles as his captive. He was first asked by Lysander what he thought he deserved for having begun uncustomary and illegal actions against the Greeks and then had his throat cut." End quote. He then turns 
to the Athenian prisoners. And although this fleet is made up of many peoples, Athens and its many allies, tens of thousands strong, about 3,000 of them are Athenian. And he executes every single one. A single ship makes it back to Athens to carry the news. And just imagine that image by itself. This fleet had been 180 ships strong, and a single ship makes it back to carry the news that they have been utterly defeated. Back to Xenophon. I'm paraphrasing just slightly here. It was at night that that final ship arrived at Athens. As the news of the disaster was told, one man passed it to another, and a sound of wailing arose, and extended first from the Piraeus, and then along the long walls until it reached the city. That night, no one slept. They mourned for the loss, but more still for their own fate. They thought that they themselves would now be dealt with as they had dealt with others. Surprisingly though, or maybe not so surprisingly, the Athenian people did not choose to surrender immediately, but instead prepared for siege and awaited the arrival of Lysander. But Lysander did not come immediately. Instead, after capturing and destroying this Athenian fleet, he moved on to the other city-states around the area, strongholds of Athens. And when he would arrive and he would defeat one of these city-states, he did something kind of surprising. He took all the Athenians in the city, and he would sometimes sell them into slavery, but very often, he would just send them back to Athens. This means that as they were sitting there, waiting for Lysander to arrive and for them to at last face the fate they thought they deserved, they instead would see Athenians arriving from all over their empire. As Lysander knocked out city after stronghold after fortress, Athenians kept showing up. Lysander was sparing everybody so that he could pump this city full of people before he put it under siege. Again, Lysander would have no interest in the question of mercy versus death and annihilation. He is only interested in whatever's going to be the most effective. And he pumps Athens full of hungry people. And when he finally arrives with his fleet, he says that anybody going into Athens with food will be executed. And Lysander and his fleet is not the only thing outside the walls of Athens. Both of the Spartan kings, King Aegis and the other one, are outside the walls with the armies of Sparta and their allies. This is the first time in more than a century that both of the Spartan kings have been together on a battlefield. And although Athens wants to resist, its food supply is cut off. It has no other options. Consider how many blows they have taken in this war. They have suffered incredible defeat after incredible defeat, and yet always found a way to go forward. But now they are out of money, they are out of ships, they are out of men to simply fight this war, much less lead it. They last for the winter, and finally, they agree that they have run out of options. Athens sends Theramenes to surrender to the Spartans and negotiate terms. As Theramenes negotiated with the leaders of Sparta and its allies, it should not surprise you to learn 
that many people wanted Athens wiped out. It wanted the men killed, that one of the women and children sold into slavery. One of the Thebans even suggested that Athens should be utterly destroyed and the city should be turned into pasture land for sheep. People had no use for Athens anymore. But as they were debating this, as the fate of Athens was being determined, there was a play put on for entertainment. And as they watched this play, one that had been written by Aeschylus, an Athenian who died many years ago, they watched this play and thought about the grandeur that Athens had brought to the area. It thought about the culture that it had offered to Greece as a whole. And as the Athenian Empire crumbled, the enemies of Athens that sat around deciding its very fate decided not to judge them by their vicious retribution at places like Skyon or their arbitrary massacre at Milos, but instead by the very best works that they had done in their day-to-day -day existence. It was decided that Athens would be stripped of its empire, but the city would remain. The navy was to be reduced to 12 triremes, and Lysander would set up an oligarchy to rule Athens. The walls of the Piraeus, the long walls that had knit them to the sea since the time of Themistocles were to be destroyed, and Athens would be just one more city answerable to the Spartan will. Theramenes begged the assembly to accept these terms, and he convinced them to do so. When the time came for the long walls of Athens to be destroyed, Lysander arrived to do it in person. Despite the fact that a Spartan empire was quietly forming in the corners of the Aegean Sea to the Peloponnesians and their allies and the rest of the enemies of Athens and their unwilling subjects in this Athenian empire, today was finally the day where they would be free. This was a reason for celebration, and Lysander brought out girls from the city to play music as the walls were torn down. The final sounds of the Athenian Empire and the 27-year-long Peloponnesian War were not that of men shrieking as they were murdered on the battlefield, and the wailing of women being dragged into slavery, and the cries of children while they watched. But instead, while the long walls of the Piraeus were being torn down, and the remaining triremes of Athens were burned in the harbor, the final sounds of the Athenian Empire were that of dancing and music. <laughs>